I can't tell you what I feel. I don't know what to say. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Four Strings and Screams, the damn good musical podcast and the only one you will never need. Better believe it. Today I have a very interesting guest with me. He is the composer of several video game soundtracks such as Paradise Killer, Sentry and Tetris Tech Base. He is Barry Topping and we will discuss naturally video game soundtracks but also how to get into music, how did he get into composing music for video games and also some very obscure musical trivia about video games. So let's dive in. Okay Barry, uh, do you want to tell me how did you become a musician? Let's start from the very beginning, like what were your uh, first steps? How did you come into this, the music career, music business? Reaching back into the prehistoric depths of history, <laughs> I can yeah. tell you about, yeah, no, nah, I just, you know, when I was a teenager, I started listening to rock music and then I picked up a guitar. I'm sure that's a lot mm-hmm. of people's trajectory too, but certainly, yeah, like my first, second year of high school, you just start listening to rock music because everyone's got, everyone must have one friend in the friend group that's like, oh, hey man, you heard Nirvana before, right? Because... <laughs> I don't really feel like it was in the consciousness at that point because I was I got into music I would say sort of late 90s early 2000s so right as mm-hmm. new metal was beginning to happen so mm-hmm. I think that was was a kind of significant moment in my adolescence because I feel like rock music especially came back into the public consciousness in a big way so yeah all I wanted to do when I was a teenager was just play guitar so I played guitar and then obviously the next obvious step from that is you have friends that play guitar and bass and drums and then you start a band. So I play I played in bands, you know, twenty years, um, doing various things. Mm-hmm. And then at some point there's a realization when you're in a band that you you are writing music. I feel like you become self aware of the fact that you are writing music and then at some point you realise that hey, maybe I could do this for more than just, like, fun. I certainly Mm -hmm. don't think it came around until right at the end of high school because basically the way it works in Scotland is we have free tuition for higher education so you can Mm -hmm. go to university and the government pays for it. So it's kind of almost expected towards the end of high school that you're going to go and continue to study something, which, you know, was lucky for me, so... Yeah, at some point I just realised that I can go and study writing music. I can be a composer. So after school, I did like two years of college, three years of university, just studying music and composition. Um, And yeah, through that time, kept on playing in bands. Um, I played in a lot of bands. I played in punk bands, metal bands. Um, I was in a wedding band, like a a covers band for ten, like maybe like five or six years. Um, I nearly said ten years. I don't think it was that long. <laughs> um, yeah, tons of stuff. I did. A, I did a lot of DJing for a while. Um, I've been in like, you know, a two-piece synth pop band. I've been in like a six-seven-piece kind of prog rock band. So, mm. I was just always through university and through school was playing in bands, playing music, writing music, and then at some point, like, it's quite hard to find a job. In music and so there was a small period of my life where 
come at university I had to get a job that was just the most boring inane shit you can imagine because I mean, everyone has a period where they have to work a job they hate but yeah. my period of working a job I hated was maybe a bit longer than most so video games as well were always something that I loved and at some some point again I feel like you realise you can write music for games that that is a very small area for you to focus your career on but certainly for a long time it was my hope and yeah so while working my incredibly boring post-university jobs I just spent a lot of time writing music and really trying to figure out how you become a composer how you can work in video games and how you can build a career out of doing what you love mm-hmm. uh, well done kind of long-winded <laughs> yeah it was a kind of a generic question open-ended question but then the next question comes logical what have you learned about being <laughs> a video game composer what what would you say one needs to do if one wants to become a video game composer music composer i feel like you need to com- completely abandon <laughs> you have to like almost abandon your your ego your idea of self mm. you have to detach yourself from the physical world <laughs> because the most natural thing to do when you're trying to find a job is be like hey i am looking for a job but that is absolute poison to anyone who works in video games because anyone who works for a game developer gets a thousand emails a week from composers Mm. looking for work Mm. because there are thousands of composers out there in about 10 jobs realistically so a thing that i didn't didn't know for a while but if i had to give anyone a tip it's be like there's pretty much no point in getting on the internet and sending emails to every developer you possibly can specifically looking for a job you really have to try and make connections it's cynical to call it networking but i just think you have to know people on a personal level mm. and then at some point maybe you can float hey listen to this music i've done <laughs> and that won't be everyone's trajectory but it was certainly for me the more you go after it the harder it is to t- attain almost so it takes a big a big dose of luck i think that's what it took for me i really just had to be at the right place at the right time five or six times in order to get enough momentum for my life to reach a tipping point where i could quit my terrible job and just do music full time i was just going to say it's important to always always be putting stuff out because i maybe had a couple of years that like when i was you know working for the council or whatever where i wasn't really putting out music and mm-hmm. I think you lose momentum really quickly and a year becomes two years, two years becomes three years. I just think as a musician, if you have any sort of public facing accounts or persona or a way you want to be perceived, just look busy. Just and and not don't like make it up, but yeah, just keep making music, just keep doing it. Because the whole time that you're trying to you know maybe break into getting a job somewhere if you continue writing music you're only going to get better and better mm-hmm. and yeah eventually all all that stuff will pay off eventually just gotta keep working it's it sucks because so many other careers it's like oh hey i just got out of university and i got a degree can i have a job now and it's like sure but with music it's like i'm sorry you want a job no 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 we don't have any of those so it's tough it took me a long time like but would you say also of course it's important to build one's own portfolio so that you know 
you can showcase your kind of musical skills what do you work on and stuff massively i did i did a lot of free work for people mm-hmm. which i know is not something that's encouraged anymore but honestly in my case it you know it did me a lot of favors mm. and you know in some cases it might have taken seven or eight years for that to pan out but i think you have to be playing the long game with your career mm. so always just keep writing music do whatever you want if you want to write for a rpg just do it make up an rpg in your head just write music for it because i did that for stuff i did like a, i really have always wanted to work on a shoot 'em up so when I was a bit younger, I just decided to just start speculatively writing music for a shoot 'em up, hmm. and it's like there's nothing to lose from that. If you've got the time to do it, then you know you've done it. It's something you've done. You put it in your portfolio, and it just makes people aware that you can you can do it all. Don't think anyone who's a composer now will feel this way, but maybe <laughs> people who are just getting into it for the first time don't ever feel like there's nothing you can't do. Like, you can do anything. You can write anything. You just have to figure out your own approach to it. And continuing to work on music and build a portfolio is a massive way to build that confidence and to build that kind of skill set. Something that I've always wondered when thinking about uh, someone who wants to become a video game composer, uh, would you say it's... Probably you already kind of answered this, but (laughs) let's be 100% clear. Uh, Would you say it's better to have a lot of variety in the things that you write and the, the music that you play or just try to you know r- r- get really good at something specific i don't know kind of specific style or genre or atmosphere why would you say it's better i don't think there's a right and a wrong answer but for me personally i'm someone that's skilled up in a lot of different things in a mm-hmm. lot of different areas before i became a full-timer doing music for like maybe seven years i worked as a videographer and that came about through me and a friend of mine started a full service production company because we'd both reached a point with freelancing at the time where we thought it'd be better to pull our efforts. So I ran the audio side of the company, he ran the video side of the company. But basically through doing that, I learned how to shoot and edit video. Mm-hmm. And even though you're not sitting in front of a keyboard writing music, there's a massive transferable skill set across all media jobs. Mm. So like, I, I could pretty much edit a video from day one because it's a very similar approach to how you write music i think if you have an editor brain like you can work in any creative medium really where where you have a skill set that lets you say this is good this is bad then you can do that sort of thing and like i said it's only going to make you better and only going to make you a more well-rounded person right so Mm -hmm. so yeah it's my approach has always been there are things that I like doing better than others, but I definitely feel like I'm just kind of, for be- for lack of a better term, a jack of all trades. Like, I feel like I can do quite a lot of stuff. And that's not, you know, entirely down to innate talent or whatever. It's just down to working hard and wanting that to be my approach. Because I think everyone that works in the media or the arts now has to be a bit of a chameleon. Mm. Like, you have to be able to work fluidly across different roles and especially in game development you know if you're working with a team within a company that have the scope for it i think a lot of small small teams especially are quite happy to have you chip in on other things so yeah just that would be my approach i i'm not someone that ever found you can singularly go after one thing and make it happen 
I'm not saying that's not true, but just the way it worked out for me is just continuing to scale up and being a jack of all trades really helped me massively. Yeah, because this is also something that I feel has changed a bit over the last few years. Uh, again, this is just something personal, so I'm not saying it's uh, like the objective truth or anything, but uh, but yeah, I felt like compared, mm. for example, to the 90s or, you know, even the early 2000s, now the, there's a lot of composers work in, uh, in, in the video games, uh, but also I was maybe say also in the movie, it was movies in the cinema that uh, are becoming really jack of all trades. I mean, they're, they're not, they used to be composers that were really, you know, specific in doing so, that were really studied like their place, their style, you would recognize them right away in games or movies, you know, you could just mm -hmm. really tell. Uh, today, I think this all has changed a lot. I see a lot of people that, yeah, even work in, uh, in video game in video game music that do a lot of stuff, a lot of different genres. They do like they write lyrics, they do songs. You also actually <laughs> did that as well. Uh, it's become maybe much more of a um, like a job with much more variety. I would say over the last ten, maybe fifteen years. But again, this is just my personal impression. So. I don't know if it's <laughs> true or not. What do you I, think? I th yeah, honestly, I think it's I think it's industry wide and worldwide. Like I think even now, if you're applying for a marketing job, you're expected to be able to do a bit of writing, do a bit of social media, mm -hmm. do a bit of graphic design. It's just the way the workforce has changed. But the unfortunate thing is, like, t in order to have a wide skill set, you need a ton of like privilege for lack of a better word mm. you have to have the resources in your life there that you can dedicate a mm -hmm. huge chunk of your time on this earth to learning and again like uh, i i came from just like just a normal scottish working class family and if it wasn't for the, the system we have here where you can go to university for free i would have never had time to dedicate five years of my young life to basically being in bands and playing music mm. Like, my parents could have never afforded to send me to a university and pay for that entire thing. And e even when I came out of university, like, it was a non-pressure enough situation. Like, I could still live at home for a few years that I, you know, I wasn't just thrown out into the world. So, for people who are in, you know, normal working class situations now, like, it's incredibly difficult to do that and I think that's why there are a lot of kind of more middle class people in the games industry especially in more established places mm -hmm. because you know they necessarily have all the the associated privilege to get there and I'm someone that definitely had that like my situation nurtured me in a way that mean meant I could do that so you know it's and and it was hard for me like I had a really hard time getting into music as a career so for you know other people out there like anyone even anyone even remotely marginalized at all it must just be very difficult really hard yeah definitely because you need to invest uh, a lot of time a lot of resources in in yourself so that not only comes with uh, yeah you know with the financial burden but also you know kind of uh, mental burden as well because of course uh, I think it's normal that the more you invest in yourself, the more you actually expect from yourself that, you know, you're going to go on to bigger things yeah. in a way. <laughs> and of course, that doesn't always happen. And it's not always your fault, obviously. But yeah, sometimes, of course, 
you don't understand it. So there's a lot of, you know, normal moments, of, I would say, of personal crisis where one says, uh, you know, uh, I'm also yes. speaking personally, <laughs> where one says, you know, I've learned all these many things, but uh, I apparently haven't mastered none of them. You know, <laughs> you become uh, like this jack of all trades that can do a lot of stuff, but uh, can do really one thing exceptionally well you know what i mean and then you start to doubt yourself and you say well maybe i should have just focused on one thing yeah. but what what thing should i focus on yeah it's exactly what i meant when i kind of half jokingly said you have to detach yourself from the ego from the physical world mm. because mm. there are so many for people that have chosen a life in the arts there are so many setbacks mm. but you just have to remind yourself that you're working towards something you know, it's you're. I mean, very few people's life is like quick, regular gratification. I think you just have to keep the faith, like that you're on the right path and you're doing what you love. Because that's the thing that makes it ultimately easy. Like, you know, all the music I've written, all the bands I've played in, all the times I've had to unload a van at three a.m. after a wedding. It's like, it's justifiable because it's your passion, because it's doing something that you love, mm -hmm. and. Yeah, I think if you can find a balance between this is hard work, but also I love doing this, then yeah, that unlocks a lot of power, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. Speaking of video games, since we are a little bit on the topic, what would you say were the video games that inspired you the most in terms of music, soundtracks and all of that? At some point, you realize that video game music is its own thing. Mm -hmm. Because when, when you start listening to music, I think I listen to like the Spice Girls, might have had a Guns N' Roses CD. So, you know, you're very much listening to artists. But then you only ever hear music within the context of a video game until at some point. I mean, it's different now because we have streaming. Mm -hmm. But uh, an anecdote I like to use is I remember buying the CD soundtrack for Final Fantasy VII mm -hmm. off eBay. It was like the first thing I ever bought off eBay. And it's like, I can listen to this now and... I used to sit there at like games that had sound tests. I would put the sound test on and like I used to record like onto tape just from like the phono yeah. out of my TV or like out with the SNES even. I just plug the phonos from the SNES into like this old shitty ghetto blaster. <laughs> but actually being like, actually having a physical musical video game product and listening to it made a real connection with me where I was like, oh. It's a th it exists in the same realm as all other music. Mm. I think up until that point, there'd been a barrier in my head where it's like, this is popular music, and then this is video game music. But they're the same thing. And then you start to see the crossover. Like, when I started listening to prog rock, it's so gamey. Like, and you can see where... Because my favourite video game music is largely all stuff from the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see, especially in the early 90s, arcade games, consoles at that time, Actually, even going all the way back to 16- and 8-bit consoles, yep. you can see them pulling from stuff like prog rock, from, you know, even 70s rock, 80s pop, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And when then, then you start to realise that, hey, video game music existed and ran alongside popular music. And everything that happened culturally in popular music also happened to video game music. It's like, why in the 90s did soundtracks for games like Wipeout suddenly mirror the music that people were listening to in nightclubs? <laughs> because culturally they were affected by the same stuff, right? And then, yeah, it, it's so weird to me that 
I mean, obviously, when you're a kid, you're not going to be having these complex thoughts. It's just, hey, music good. But looking back on it, yeah, I can really see where at some point I realized game music was a thing, that it was different, and that I could love it, you know, as well as other types of music, and that had the same amount of value. Well, like I said, I always loved arcade games. When music switched from kind of like chiptune style onboard sound chips to more like CD quality red book audio, mm -hmm. I think that's like a classic era in video game music and synthesis especially. Like I'm a big synthesizer guy, and like all that nineties, see that early nineties Roland, all that Roland stuff. Like it all sounds so like crisp, and I think. Anyone that's, I assume we are kind of a similar age, and I feel like anyone that's our kind of age is always going to have a nostalgia for the sounds of the 80s yep. and probably the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and older, I found myself more drawn to especially 80s music and 80s sounds. And after all that, all that stuff died off, because, it, you know, it became, nobody was interested in the 80s sound past a certain year. But I feel like it really continued on through video games for a lot of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like the kind of crispness the clarity and this like synthesizer sounds of that era really had a place to continue to exist in games and then that started to intersect with other musical styles from the 90s so there's so much exciting stuff from that period like i love all the kind of classic grpg soundtracks i love lots of like shoot 'em up soundtracks oh mm -hmm. a big game that i always mention is a uh, mystical ninja starring goemon mm. on nintendo 64 mm -hmm probably my favorite game soundtrack ever and it's like such an eclectic mix of brilliant styles and sounds and ideas i really love the hammond organ and people are always like oh you know you love the hammond organ because you love prog rock <laughs> it's like no i love it because it's predominantly featured in mystical ninja starring goemon like video games were the first place that i heard a lot of sounds you know they were the first place i heard a synth lead they were the first place I heard a Hammond organ. They were the first place I heard an orchestra hit. Like, imagine thinking about the first time you ever heard an orchestra hit. That's <laughs> a formative moment for any musician, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there was just there's so much to love from that era. And then when I got older and I started being able to buy my own games and, you know, options like emulation opened up, I just started playing hundreds of video games mm. and just absorbing everything I could. And... Yeah, and I'll ju I just love game music. Even now, like even up to the modern stuff, I think there's still artists out there who are putting out pretty much some of the best game music that's ever been made. And especially in the indie game space, mm. I think it's such a nurturing and free place for composers especially to just do like incredible work. Mm -hmm. Personally, for example, I grew up with the sounds of the Commodore 64. I mean, I'm not I'm not that old, but I mean, usually the, the people who grew up with the Commodore 64 are like 50 years old. I'm not 50 years old, but I was kind of late to the you know to the Commodore 64, and my you know my family never bought me another console until way until the 90s. So yeah, basically, mm -hmm. I grew up with uh, what kids in Italy were growing up with 1983, but I grew up with it like 10 years later. But okay. Uh, Commodore 64 music is uh, recognized to be one of the 
best in that era because of course the SID chip was one of the best that you could find around, especially compared to you know the ZX Spectrum, which was uh, sounded much worse to say something. Yeah, <laughs> and... that's controversial. I do agree <laughs> with you, but just just so you know, you're gonna get some angry yeah, angry letters I know, I know. this episode. I know. I'm ready to take the the heat for the for the SID chip. I mean, the, it deserves it. You know, it deserves my sacrifice. But yeah, uh, yeah. Jokes aside. Um, those those composers were basically writing uh, music in like 4K of memory, maybe sometimes even yeah. less. And you know, most times what happened is that they would basically commission music uh, with just a vague idea of what the game would actually look like and even play like, because of course they had to deliver the soundtrack way earlier than the release date. So of course there was no way that they could actually see the game. I mean, I think it happened a few times, but, but yeah, generally they would just have a very vague idea of what the game would be about. So you ended up with this classic, you know, soundtrack, Rob Hubbard, Ben Daglish, whatever. Now you, you even listen to them today and they sound like, again, like prog a bit, like a lot of classical music also, I think. And of course, yeah. also 80s pop. There was a lot of uh, influence, you know, by the early like um, electronic acts like Orchestra Manuvas in the Dark and of course Kraftwerk and all that good stuff. Yeah, you know, they, I, I think in a way those soundtracks lived kind of separate life from the game in that you didn't really need to play the game to appreciate them in a way. I mean, they were just good electronic music on their own. They weren't like, you know, like a movie soundtrack that you, you know, you needed to at least see the movie to imagine a bit what the soundtrack was, you know, referring to what kind of images they did in your head at least. But I think from that period, it didn't really work that way. Uh, so I think a big step in video game soundtrack was when actually, which I think happened more or less in the, as, as you mentioned, the CD era, the Red Book era, maybe, for the most part, uh, when actually composers started to work together with the development team so that, you know, you could actually have a soundtrack that uh, worked for various moments in the game for mm -hmm. you know for various atmosphere various i don't know levels scenes i don't know what you want to call them uh that's when i think we can really see you know the the composer is becoming like an active part of the of the video game like of the development team and you mentioned before about writing um wanting to write a soundtrack for a for a for a shoot em up or it was a first person yeah. shoot well, shoot em up okay yeah for sure okay um so I and of course this was some, something of a personal project, so it wasn't like commissioned. So what kind of uh, what kind of images did you have in your mind when you were composing this soundtrack to a game that didn't exist in a way? I built an idealized shoot 'em up in my head based on what I liked about all my favorite shoot 'em ups. Mm -hmm. uh, I really like. There's a really specific type of sound that. I find it very hard to put into words that exists from this period where I can just conjure images to my mind. I can think of like 
you're playing a racing game there's a huge waterfall off to the left of the track mm-hmm. you're flying through space you're flying through a, a city a daylit city on like a, in a futuristic or an alien world you know there's all these images that converge in my head to make a sound that's like bright and sharp mm-hmm. and shoot 'em ups to me especially shoot 'em ups are almost like a crystallization of everything that's great about video games they sell you on the entire audiovisual package because they have to be exciting and it has to feel exciting to do that and like you were saying about a lot of the early music it wasn't really woven through the game's dna because mm-hmm. it sat on top to give you something nice to listen to while you were yep. you know on the title screen or playing a level and i think shoot 'em ups have always been so great at like using music to pull you into the world because they're loud and they're fast and they're exciting Mm -hmm. so i just had to yeah just visualize in my head what's like what is it i love about shoot 'em ups just even imagine you know two still images of what the shoot 'em up would look like and just write based on that using the sounds that i really like because i think composers from a technological standpoint we have it really easy now i can go and find a sound in 10 seconds like I can pick, I can hear a sound in my head, related to like you know, oh, I like this kind of sound from this kind of song from this kind of game. I can just go and get that. But you know, pre even Redbook Audio, like we were saying, very very difficult to do that. Mm. There was so much more sound design involved from a technical standpoint, and even with the advent of Redbook Audio, when you start getting into composers using hardware samplers and stuff to start building their own sound sets. I love doing that. Like I absolutely love setting up a synthesizer, getting like some crunchy samples off it and building a sound palette for a game. But from a time point of view, it's quite a luxurious thing to do. And a lot of people who are probably working on games now might not have the time or are being paid the budget to go away and spend, you know, six weeks sampling all their favourite synthesizers to make like a really fun bespoke thing. Mm. So yeah, but in a lot of ways, I think we have it easier where we can just go and I can pull the idea out of my head so easily. I feel like, you know, I have a desk, I have a MIDI controller sitting right in front of me that's connected to five synthesizers. I have endless virtual plugins on my machine that I can fire up right now. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone like uh, Rob Hubbard's a good example, or someone I always like to use is Tim Fallen. Like, mm. Tim Fallen soundtracks are just like, how did you do this? <laughs> yeah. How long did this take you? And and I know it's never a hundred percent. It goes in your head to the page to the game, but it just boggles my mind that people could sit there in front of interfaces that would absolutely drive me insane. Just the most impenetrable stuff, and just make like completely unique music. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think it's a real shame that nobody spent. There was never really a cultural acceptance of game music. Yeah. At, at a time when it was doing like properly innovative stuff mm-hmm. again someone like rob hubbard or tim fallen compare that to any of the music of the time and it's like i can see why people would think oh you know this isn't really up to scratch it's only a couple of bleeps and bloops or whatever mm-hmm. but it's like no it isn't musically technically it's just doing the wildest things you can imagine yep. and you can even listen to a lot of c64 music now and it's like god listen to that <laughs> And it's like they did this with nothing. They did this with like sticks and rocks in a cave, basically, compared to what we have now. It's just crazy. 
Yeah. Uh, well, for example, while you were talking about you know getting a, a crunchy sound out, out of your synth, uh, I was I was thinking about this Sega Genesis game. I'm using Genesis because this was released just in the U.S. Unfortunately, uh, which was uh, Skitchen from 1994. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. heard of it. And yeah, the soundtrack to Skitchen is exactly if you imagine like a grunge band playing on a Sega Genesis. Now, the Sega Genesis never had this. I don't think this is being really controversial this time. It didn't really have the best sound chip of, you know, the 16-bit generation. I mean, the Super Nintendo was (laughs) way above. The Genesis, or the Mega Drive, always had this really crunchy, kind of distorted a bit sound. So, yeah, yeah. for grunge, it works wonderfully. I mean, the, the the great thing is that when I heard the soundtrack to Skitchen for the first time, I was like 13, 14 maybe, I, I thought, this is just a band, it just, it's just four voices, you know, four different instruments in a band. It's just, you know, guitar, bass, and drums. Okay, so three instruments. And... You can just, you know, pick whatever song out of this kitchen soundtrack and play it as a real grunge band. That's mm-hmm. just basically copy and paste. I mean, it's just played on a synth because, yeah, <laughs> it's a Sega Genesis. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's ready to, you know, it's exactly that sound. It has the solos, it has the, the double pedal bass, okay, which wasn't really a thing in grunge, not, not very much. But, yeah, you know, some congestions here and there. So, so yeah, I mean, the, they really did a lot of great stuff in the okay in, in the eighties as well, but yeah, also in the nineties that yeah got quite forgotten I think over time. I mean, Tim Fallen comes up a lot also in my <laughs> in my Twitter and uh, yeah, absolutely love his stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of other uh, you know the smaller composer uh, composers that really get mentioned and uh, one, another soundtrack that I always mention uh, so. Sorry to my listeners that you know listen to my other podcast because I've probably mentioned that a hundred times. But it is a soundtrack to this uh, 1996 adventure game on PC, which is the the Neverhood. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Neverhood has this like very very unique soundtrack that sounds like nothing else. Not not also in the in the game like in the video game world, but I think in general in soundtracks, it's basically like you know this kind of weird. Um, sort of mix of folk and children's music and a bit of pop and a bit of folk uh, mm. yeah it, it's a really weird mix but it works it works because yeah the, you can even see in the the making of that the composer was there on the set on the claymation set and he worked with the with the team and everything so it was really you know it made perfect sense for that game so yeah that's uh that's i think what what matters the most in that uh, when you, you know, when in the 90s they started to actually work together with the composer, they had a sort of composer in-house, so to speak. Yeah. Then you could really see this experience changing and being, yeah, really influential in uh, also for uh, for future composers. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to, to mention, you also did the soundtrack to that uh, very interesting <laughs> sort of first-person shooter, which is uh, Thatcher's Tech Bass. Yes. 
And actually, I, I played it and I, I didn't know it was you, of course, at the time. <laughs> but then I then I said, wow, that, that game actually had a pretty cool soundtrack. So now no, I, I definitely see it. Uh, what were the inspirations for that soundtrack, if you if you care to mention a few? Because um, I'm curious. Um, I've always been a fan of metal. Like, <laughs> when I was, I was in a metal band for a long time. And I had long hair and used to wear a black work shirt. Mm. All that stuff. <laughs> so metal was always something that's been in my periphery and so yeah my friend jim was making thatcher's tech bass for a while and i was like not i was specifically like you gotta let me write some sc55 sound canvas doom <laughs> music for this because it was a small a smaller project i i really wanted to be like i will write a midi like sc55 compatible midi music mm -hmm. for your game because sitting there and like i don't know if you've I don't know if you've done a lot of stuff with MIDI, but I hadn't touched actual MIDI files since college. So mm -hmm. going through and like setting all the volume levels and the effects levels and the controller lane stuff was a very nostalgic experience <laughs> for me. So the way that that soundtrack ended up is when I started writing the MIDI stuff, I was like, oh, we should make like full band modern versions of this. And again, because it was a short soundtrack, I had the leeway to do that. Mm -hmm. So... It's a mixture of, there's a couple of riffs in there that I've had sitting around in project files since like 2005, 2006. Hmm. Stuff for old bands that never got used. And then I just built on top of it. But if, I think if you listen to the, like the kind of more modern versions, of, I think for people that don't know, say it's like a 15 minute soundtrack cause it's quite a small game. Mm -hmm. And half of, on the soundtrack release, there are the MIDI SC55 versions, which you can, you know, load up into your sound canvas and they'll sound exactly the way that I intended them to sound. And there's also these 20XX full band versions I made, which are all like, you know, kind of more modern metal drums. But that was really specifically written to a really specific style of metal. I used... Keyboard-wise, I used the Roland JV1080, which is like was an instrument that was favored by a lot of like mellow death bands around the late '90s and the early 2000s. Like it famously has the Children of Bodom bell sound on it, mm. which is a th you know if you've ever listened to Children of Bodom, you know exactly the sound I mean. <laughs> and I made like uh, this very Stratovarius lead sound again, which is like an old it's like an old Jupiter patch just like layered up with a bunch of distortion. So I tried to make it really authentic and i didn't want it to sound too modern because i think metal production is quite sterile now mm. and my favorite styles of metal is all, like i said all the stuff from the the 2000s like i think that's pretty much where all the best metal lives now um so yeah when we were writing thatcher's tech base it was like a double pronged approach of authenticity where i wanted the sound canvas style ones to sound like they could be from doom and I wanted the more modern ones to sound like a band recorded this in 2004. So that was an extremely fun project for that reason. Mm. And actually, it ties into, interestingly, kind of what we were just talking about. Imagine in the 90s you're a composer who works for any of the PC game developers mm -hmm. and you have to make a soundtrack. You're not really in control of what that sounds like because ultimately it's down to whatever sound hardware yeah. the end user has. Mm -hmm. I could not do that. That would, <laughs> that would kill me. Like, 
just the thought of like working so hard on something and being like this person is going to play the game and they have the shittest sound card imaginable <laughs> and they're going to hate the music that must have been bad like <laughs> yeah the, yeah and you know the the kind of even worse thing is that you actually needed to spend a lot of money if you wanted your the music to actually sound good that of course the MT Roland MT32 costed you know like I don't know two or three times like a sound blaster, right? So you know that I, I wouldn't think I, I for sure I couldn't afford one, but yeah I think many people couldn't afford one. So of course you were stuck with those kind of sound blaster clones, which made everything sound quite tinny. Yes, especially regarding MIDI, of course. Uh, but yeah, you know at least that we can see kind of a positive side in that you know today you can just load up kind of MT32 uh, sound font, you know, kind of a, an, an emulator on your PC and you can play, you know, all these old games and they sound like the composer intended to, that they should sound. So at least, you know, it's kind of a silver lining, you know, like a yeah. to 20, 30 years later. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that MIDI is a dead... Te- I mean, obviously, from a technological standpoint, it's not... But even from a Sonic standpoint, I feel mm. like there's still so much cool stuff we can do with MIDI mm. and especially old sound sets. See, when we put out Thatcher's Tech Bass, I saw someone on Twitter actually playing Thatcher's Tech Bass via their sound canvas, like with the MIDIs that I provided with the soundtrack release. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, this just works. Isn't this great? <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> so, And it's because we have stuff like Roland's sound canvas virtual instrument that it's easily attainable and i know like buying a sound canvas isn't too expensive now but mm-hmm. with with like rolling subscription model like i was saying earlier you just have all these classic sounds at your fingertip and you can chop and change them and you know do whatever you want and it's, there's just so much stuff out there to encourage your creativity so and yeah thatcher's tech base was so fun really really fun project uh but you mentioned something that I actually wanted to, to ask, a kind of a footnote in a way, but I was interested. Uh, th- there was a tweet, I don't know if you saw it, going around recently about, you know, the classic do music versus modern do music. Mm-hmm. And personally, I like them both. But I have a problem, which I think you, you might agree with, but let's see. I have a problem with modern do music in that it's that kind of sound that the kind of over compressed metal sound that you hear a lot of in shooter like maybe from painkiller onwards like 2004 painkiller mm-hmm. was the, i think the first to use kind of over compressed distorted guitars sound uh i know it sounds fine for like 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes but like you know you get into one hour two hours it gets very tiring to my to my ears at least. I don't know if you agree. So I would say classical doom, but let's hear your opinion. If we take Doom twenty sixteen for an example, mm. you could quite easily say this is fatiguing. Mm. And I would say to that, good it should be. <laughs> that is a game that is designed from the ground up <laughs> to just be an absolute assault. And I think it's great that they gave us the option to say no that's enough of that after half an hour take a wee break <laughs> like i personally love that and i know i just said 10 minutes ago that i think music production's become a bit sterile but that at the time that doom uh, metal production specifically that doom 2016 soundtrack hits so hard and it hit harder than anything that any of the kind of like 
gent bands were doing at the time, I would mm. say. Mm-hmm. Like, still now, it's like, there are very few people out there that can... And I know they can tune their guitar lower and they can make the snare sound fatter, but there's just something about that Doom 2016 soundtrack that is it's absolutely hellborn music. It's just so intense. And yeah, I think... Like, I can see why people would say it's fatiguing, but I felt like it fit that game perfectly. Because even in the moments of downtime, there's a, just a sense of dread mm. that I think the music is creating at all times. And yeah, I'll, honestly, I think it's great that you can have the option to have a game like that. Mm. Because if you like classic Doom, you can play classic Doom. Yeah. And if you want to have a bad time, you can play Doom 2016. <laughs> I think it was important that it did something like that, though, right? Because the original Doom soundtrack is so influential on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And it borrowed so heavily from the metal yeah. of the time. Yeah. Like, it's like so thrash. And then when Doom 2016 came along, it did the same thing. It borrowed from the metal of the time. It did its own thing and it became, you know, iconic for different reasons. But yeah, I think they're I think they're both great. Like, I wouldn't be able to pick a favourite. I just think they do their job incredibly well. Mm. Um, and then I think Doom Eternal is a bit more diluted. Mm. Which is fine because... Uh, so much of what game development must be for AAA games especially is again but more yeah it's like we had this big success this huge game and it's like just give it again but more Mm -hmm. but i think doom 2016 is just right on the line of doing enough yeah that's a that's an interesting point of view that that, that's why i say that i like them both in that i wouldn't say one is bad one is good but yeah that's uh I see definitely what you mean. I definitely come up against it in my own creative processes. Because I write quite maximalist music, I would say. Mm. Like, I'm capable of writing a dynamic spectrum, but I'm happiest when I'm writing music that has a lot going on. And it's not something I really have to fight, but I can see sometimes when people I'm working with are like, is this too much? But you just have to trust that for some people it will be, and for some people it won't be. And it's always far easier for me to come down than it is to go up. <laughs> so that but that's a personal thing. But yeah, personally, I'm I'm not someone that ever gets fatigued by music and games. So I guess I'm lucky. You mentioned yeah, minimalist music, and that reminds me that in the last like two three weeks, I've played a few indie games, mostly adventure games, but yeah, also beyond adventure, also other games. Uh, and what I've noticed is that while their soundtracks are fine, yeah, they're not bad at all. You wouldn't say they're grading or well, you know, they're badly produced or whatever. They're fine. They're just, you know, content to stay in the background, which is, which I know it might be something that a lot of people want or might mm. desire in their games. I don't know. I mean, personally, you know, I always want. Okay, I said always. Maybe more correct would be most of the time. But let's go with always. You know, I would always want video game, my video game music to be an integral part of the game in that it should communicate something along with everything else, along with the game design, along with the story, the graphics, you know, everything, all the, yes. the whole uh, package. Yeah, this ties in with what you were saying in that if I was given a choice between, you know, having a soundtrack that goes minimalist or <laughs> maximalist i would surely pick the latter i would surely have something that picks my interest that keeps me engaged even if it's 
too much engaged. That's fine. I mean, I, I, you know, if it gets too much, I might take a break. I might, I don't know, lower the volume, whatever. But yeah, I would actually much prefer that than have something that is just, you know, content to stay in the background and not really do much except, yeah, stay in the background. So I, I think you agree with that. Uh, yeah, I th like I think what you were saying, especially with indie developers, there's pretty much nothing to lose by making your music a big part of your game, mm. feature featuring it in a big way. Because as we've just spent the last hour talking about, Video game music is great, and it's a huge part of why the medium of games is good. And it's not it. It's hard. It's hard to be critical of AAA games in a way that doesn't just sound like being critical for the sake of it. <laughs> but a lot of film music staples made it over to AAA video games, mm. and they become cinematic in a way that fits what the project is doing, mm -hmm. but is not personally exciting to me as a fan of video game music yep. and that's it's not objective in any way at all and it's not this good this bad but it's just personally for me like i feel like as composers as people that are making video games we have such a unique ability to do stuff that we can only do within the medium of video games and it's a shame i think that a lot of big games have started to become more like films yeah but I'm, uh, that's just my personal opinion. I'm someone that, you know, I'll, I'll like, you know, I want to play stuff like Time Crisis. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to, I want, like the video game experiences, I want to be in a stinky bowling alley and playing Time Crisis on the most yellow CRT TV you've ever seen. <laughs> and it's great that we have the breadth and the depth, but yeah, just personal opinion, I feel like when I play a video game, I want to be like, oh my God, this music. Mm. Like, I want to be smacked in the face by it. And again, to go back to what I was saying about indie games, in the last 10 years, there have just been an absolute breadth of incredible indie game soundtracks. There's been mm -hmm. so much cool stuff happening in indie games. And I really think it's because composers have the freedom to... Not only not only that, it's, it's two things. It's because new composers are getting a chance to prove themselves. Yep. And everyone that's coming into the medium as a new person working in it wants to prove themselves and they've been doing incredible work and th I think you're just more free to take risks when you're a smaller team working on a smaller project and that has let music become more of a focus at an indie game level while it may have become less of a focus at a higher level and that obviously doesn't mean it's gotten worse it's just rarely featured in the same way in bigger video games mm -hmm. and again that's fine it's just a divergence in style but i do think it's helped nurture music within the indie game scene that small developers are willing to feature it willing to take more of a chance on it and willing to push their games in more eclectic and yeah maximalist directions yeah especially when you see examples like uh recently 80s which you know there the music is a huge part of the game that you have even duets with the characters where they sing the same song yeah and so much different styles in a soundtrack which you know is my is my go-to is what i like to hear in my video game soundtrack i like kind of melange of different styles different genre different atmosphere i you know i usually get get bored if it's just like you know it sticks just one mood you know it's just mm. like yeah but yeah, the indie scene has been doing very, very interesting things. But 
I want you to go back in time for <laughs> for one last time. Sorry about the, the That's fine, let's do it. The wordplay. Uh, because I was thinking because you, you mentioned earlier new metal and uh, it's been you know knowing knowing at the back of my mind since you mentioned it, in that there was a time in video games where there were a lot of bands features on soundtracks. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. we, we were talking yes. Yeah, talking about, you know, late nineties, early two thousand, maybe a PlayStation one, two era, more or less. I mean to like the Tony Hawks games, like yeah. those soundtracks soundtracks were massive for you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people probably mm -hmm. played those games and yeah, absorbed those soundtracks, right? Yeah. One of the first I remember is the is the Road Rash 3D soundtrack, which they were kind of mixed, usual mix of obscure bands and bands that were a little more known. I think Soundgarden it wasn't Soundgarden. It was the Tea Party, which I actually started to listen because I listened to the Road Rash 3D soundtrack. There was Full on the Mouth, which I don't even know who that. It was Kid Rock. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh God. And Sugar Ray, when they, you know, when they didn't really suck back in the day. Okay, it was really a mix of uh, <laughs> known bands and obscure. It was really more on the obscure side. It, it depended, I think, on the budget well, of, the, of the game. Yeah, um, the game that I was thinking of, I've, I've been listening to this band called Paw that I'd never heard of, mm. and they had a song on the on the PC version of the Road Rush soundtrack. Oh, okay. And like I'd never heard of them, but this, uh, it's a song called Jesse. Uh, anyway, it's great. But yeah, that has that same soundtrack has like Monster Magnet, Soundgarden, mm. um, the Therapy, one. Therapy's on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty wild, right? Yeah, I, I, I you know sometimes I I miss a little bit that <laughs> that appeared when there was this kind of um, juxtaposition between game soundtracks and movie soundtracks because they were really doing the same thing, you know, around that time when. I think the sequel to The Crow came out and all kind of dark slash goth music, uh, music, sorry, movies, uh, or Blade, for example, you know, all, all these movies that had a lot of bands. Yeah. I, also, the Resident Evil soundtrack had a bit of a thing going on. There was Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson, I think. I kind of miss that period sometimes. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, you used to have, uh, for example, I remember quite nostalgically the introduction video for duke nukem time to kill on the playstation where it was the the whole introduction was soundtracked by a song from stabbing westward which uh i don't know they, they were right. they were everywhere at the time i don't know i don't know how they even never managed to become even okay they became vaguely successful for like six months but yeah they really didn't go beyond that, but they were stabbing Westworld everywhere. Movies, they were in the Mortal Kombat soundtrack, uh, the movie, not the game, obviously. Uh, and they were in two or three games, I think. Uh, the Crow 2, uh, yeah, they were everywhere. I think the Spawn soundtrack as well. Yeah, they, they were everywhere. I don't know that they, they really. Yep. I think it was probably two or three labels that had kind of monopoly on. <laughs> <laughs> all the games and movies that were coming out and yeah i remember as well like once like football games pretty prominently started featuring mm. like soundtrack artists too mm -hmm. like i remember stuff like you know fifa 2000 or whatever yeah. that's like what's your favorite album oh my favorite album's the fifa 2000 soundtrack <laughs> you know stuff like that <laughs> i've got i got an extremely extremely niche bit of video game trivia for you here are you familiar with the playstation one game tomba yeah Yes. So, in 
the PAL release of Tomba, mm-hmm. it has a vocal a vocal theme tune called No Sweat. Mm-hmm. So there's a song with lyrics that a full featured song that plays over the intro to the game, mm-hmm. but No Sweat was a song performed by a British boy band called North and South, who were the subject of a children's BBC television show oh. called No Sweat. So for some reason, the theme tune for this BBC kids TV show about a fake boy band was licensed to and used as an opening song for the game Tomba on PS1 in European media. Why? <laughs> there was so much, so much weird stuff like that just started happening at that time. It's so weird. Yeah, that that is one great obscure trivia for sure. Yeah, I never knew. I mean, I don't even know the boy band, of course. So, the, <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Now it's, I, I, it's really good. I want to know more. Yeah, this is the kind of history that I usually write about. This there's yeah, I mean, there's got to be got to be other stuff like that too, where. I don't know what it is. It must have just been it reached a point where games had a licensing budget. I guess mm. it's like I want to know what caused the drive towards getting recording artists on game soundtracks. Yeah. I'd be interested to know yeah. what caused that because it lasted for a long time. Yeah, it was a good. I mean, there's some games that still do it, but yeah, but it's yeah, it's more of a niche. I would say now. I don't know. I don't, I don't really think that they have. Uh, I wouldn't even know what kind of bands <laughs> you would feature nowadays. I mean, for a you know, for a game like FIFA or Madden or yeah, I don't know, uh, PGA Golf, whatever. Uh, I could imagine, of course, a few pop artists and stuff like that. I don't know, The Weeknd, whatever. But for like a racing, yeah, for like a racing game, you know, kind of maybe like a modern Wipeout. I don't know, something like that. Uh, what kind of big? Yeah. in a way bands you know big quote-unquote big bands would you even feature i don't really know uh, I, I, yeah. I imagine you, you must have to have someone who knows what they're doing to curate that because mm-hmm. if you look at the, like the tony hawk soundtrack wasn't an accident yeah that's an expertly curated soundtrack mm-hmm. it's like who would who i mean i don't know maybe maybe i'm giving it too much credit <laughs> Maybe it was just someone saying, "Hey, let's put Jerry was a race car driver in our skateboarding game." <laughs> but I would like to believe that someone somewhere at some point was like, "Kids around the world are going to love Jerry was a race car driver, so let's put it into one box." <laughs> but yeah, what a job that must have been curating yeah. the kind of nineties game soundtracks like that. Yeah. Also, uh, now I remember. Also, the Gran Turismo soundtrack was for me as a as a teenager very important for yeah. like discovering bands like Ash, for example, which I've never heard about and never reached Italy at all. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that was also uh, and Feeder also was on the soundtrack. Yeah, that was uh, that was also a good one. Yeah, F- Feeder were in a bunch of the FIFA games as well. Mm. I think Feeder were everywhere for a while. Grand Theft Auto did a lot. I think Grand Theft Auto did a lot for the revival of 80s music. Yeah. Like, Vice City was a massive yeah. thing for 80s music, making a big comeback. Yeah. It's probably that that game where they, they had more money to, you know, to feature all the different music and licenses rather than to develop the game it, itself, probably. <laughs> they, they spent, I don't know, much money to... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, have a, I have, like, very small experience in trying to license tracks. And it's just 
extortionate like it's <laughs> eye-wateringly expensive so yeah i can't imagine what the music budget was even for something like vice city and of course also what happens now when you know, you know like 20 years later we know that those kind of licenses also expire so that when you re-release a game you have all this kind of legal hassles then that you can't feature the song anymore you have to replace this you have to replace that you know and gets a little bit it is difficult it's a very hard thing especially now i think for people to navigate as rights and licensing and publishing because there are so many people involved in the you know reasonably and naturally all want their piece of the pie but yeah, it has led to some strange situations especially with video game remasters mm-hmm. where they you know for some reason don't have the rights to the original soundtrack anymore Mm. yeah and then the people of course get mad and that oh you know this song is not there anymore and but yeah you know it's not the developer's fault of course and they don't really, they can't really do much about it because the budget is not just not there anymore so they're not going to spend <laughs> the money again to refeature the song to relicense the song again so yeah I know it's such a shame that art has to intersect with business yes at every possible juncture but Yes. This is this this is the society we made for ourselves. So. <laughs> that, that that that's a that's a quite a sad topic. One last thing I wanted to yeah. one last topic I wanted to 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 feature on is something a little bit different from video game music. In that you mentioned that you did several years playing in punk bands and rock bands and metal bands. So uh, apart from wedding receptions, you know, um, I, I suppose you also did a lot of gigs like live concerts and stuff yeah okay um no yeah yeah no that, that wasn't the question <laughs> the question was uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's you know kind of a moot question but what, what kind of uh, live experiences do you remember most what what would you say like was the the best concert like the best audience or even the worst audience that you that you remember because yeah i can imagine you did like play you know wembley stadium <laughs> or anything like that so you know kind of a smallish like uh, gigs i would imagine so uh anything interesting that you would like to share yeah i've experienced a you know the widest range of shows mm. that pretty much anyone can i think <laughs> like i've, I've i mean I've, I've never played to ten thousand people but i've played to like five thousand people mm. for example and I've played to 10 people in a high school and I'm pretty sure at one show we even played to literally just the sound guy <laughs> so um, there's different things that I love about them weddings are a good example of something that is so much fun because you're detached from the music in a way mm-hmm. like I didn't write it, it's not my music I just had to learn it and I have fun playing it and I had a great time playing weddings because I was just with my friends everyone's having a good time and it's just a great environment to play music to people are receptive mm-hmm. but when you're you know playing in your math rock band on a tuesday night in a bar in edinburgh the 20 people that are there probably aren't going to be quite as receptive yeah and you really need to find a different relationship with enjoyment there which for me was always i am playing my own music um and there's a lot of joy in having a band because I, I was always kind of a band leader like mm. I was always the organizer guy who wrote most of the music so it was a big kind of thrill for me to go up there with six people and play like you know the prog rock that I'd been writing for the last two years mm-hmm. but in terms of actual audiences often you know there was 60 70 people there at your average Scottish weeknight gig mm-hmm. and it's, it's not a life changer and you're not getting paid a lot of money for it 
you just have to do it because it's fun but when i toured america hmm. i really realized how culturally different the music scene is there hmm. because in the uk especially in scotland it's a very predatory place hmm. especially if you're young and in a band because there are a million promoters out there ready to take advantage of you oh. and we have a thing called pay to play which is essentially if you want to play this gig you have to sell 40 tickets to your friends yeah mm-hmm. and all that money goes to the pr- promoter and if you want to get paid every ticket you sell after the first 40 you get to keep half of and that's bad enough but you know you're on a band sometimes on a bill sometimes with six seven other bands who've had to do the same thing and people aren't really there because they enjoy music people are there because they're your friend Mm -hmm. and you've basically had to sell them a ticket Mm -hmm. otherwise you're not going to get to play that show yeah so when i was really young i was basically just playing to crowds that didn't give a shit and it's like of course they didn't give a shit and i think that's a real problem with the scene in the uk is that a lot of times people won't just go out and see shows because i kind of think why would they you can't make someone care it's it's a cultural thing i feel like because in the in the u.s there's there's like a real bar culture people just go out yeah they go out to bars and all these bars we played were venues and we were suddenly playing to people who cared and not only they cared about what we were doing but they wanted to support us we'd be getting paid for shows you know people would be buying merch a lot of places we played had a tip jar and because we were a touring band from scotland you know people were sometimes we get two three hundred dollars in tips a night Mm -hmm. and that was enough money to get to the next city and that level of sustainability really best describes what i experienced of the music scene in america it is sustainable it doesn't exist to make money for a small amount of people it exists to entertain people and in order for an in order for it to keep doing that it has to be sustainable mm. which means it has to be nurturing to the artists that are playing in the venues so i played some like just amazing gigs in america where just people are so willing to be into it and you know we play like there's a a wee irish bar in memphis i think it was called murphy's and so we played it in memphis a couple of times and it was always so good mm-hmm. because people just want to be there and they want to have fun and they're there anyway it's their local bar they're there drinking but you know in the uk a gig venue is a gig venue people aren't there because it's their favorite place to hang out they're coming to see a band and in a lot of cases if there's 10 bands on the lineup they're only there to see one band so why would they care about all the others yeah so yeah it's really really different in all the different kind of places around the world that i've played you know solo um in a band it's just very very different and you have to find your own sense of enjoyment within each one of those situations mm-hmm. but yeah playing to people out on the road in america was the, best. the easiest time i had and enjoying playing mm-hmm. it was always a delight and yeah it, honestly that experience changed my relationship with music really mm-hmm. after that like i pretty much lost my drive to play live anymore because we just don't have the right conditions to do it here i would say mm-hmm. and it's every, everything about being in a band is you know why does a young person join a band because they want to be famous <laughs> it's not the main reason but the thing you're working towards in a band is a path out or a path to the next level um it's very cynical but if you're in a band and i don't know if it's the same now but certainly when i was young when you're in a band in the uk 
your only real options are is to eventually get big enough that you can maybe buy yourself onto a tour mm. and buy-ons for people that don't know is you pay a management agency or a promoter to be a support band for a touring band so say, you know, there's a big metal band tour and you pay a promoter £10,000 and then you get to then be the support act for that tour. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make that money back, but the idea is that the exposure and the new fans is going to be enough to take you to the next level. And it re- really is a ladder to climb. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be because in Scotland, you have to climb that ladder to make money. But you should be getting paid for your art, even if it's, you know, a small amount of money. You should be able to show up to a venue, play people music, and at least break even. Yeah. But you just don't. And you know what? Anyone that's ever been in a band knows it's just an endless money sink. You have to pay for rehearsals. Mm -hmm. You have to pay for instrument repairs. You have to buy, you spend £60 on a new chorus pedal. It's like just a million reasons why it's expensive. And yeah, I got really jaded after coming back from America because I knew how good it was and I felt like I was probably never going to experience that again. <laughs> so yeah, it's it sucks, but playing live is something I have a very complex relationship with just because, yeah, I just know it's it takes a lot to make it worthwhile, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you can, you can do it. You can just do it for the love of it. Like you can, but it's hard. Yeah, uh, I can definitely imagine in that, Unfortunately, uh, you know, the live music situation in Italy is, I would say, far worse than <laughs> anything in the UK. Uh, I mean, even when I was younger, um, I, I don't really think we have a, we had a local music scene, like, at all. I mean, there were, like, maybe mm-hmm. two, three bands, like, local bands, you know, bands from Rome that would play around or artists. But yeah, they will usually do like uh, yeah weekly night. So yeah, weekly nights, uh, small concerts with like a hundred people maybe. You know, if they were kind of famous, mm. they would manage to break even maybe. But yeah, most times it was also for them it was kind of a pay-to-play situation, and that for every everyone else it was totally a one hundred percent pay-to-play situation. And that it was usual, you know. Uh, you were lucky if the if the if the bar where you played in uh, paid you a couple of beers to play. That in that you were lucky because usually they yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't even get those. So uh, so yeah, it was a kind of sad situation. And yeah, as we mentioned in the, in America, I've uh, uh, been to a couple of concerts, and yeah, the, the situation is definitely different. And uh, also, what's what for me was incredible in that you have a huge selection each night of bands and artists that you can go and see in that that's not something that I was accustomed yeah. to in Rome at all <laughs> I mean I think uh, like when I when I used to be like a music critic uh, I managed to like go to maybe 10 concerts a month that was like my best and that was not because you know I didn't want to I wanted to sleep the other night just there wasn't anything else to go see mm-hmm. and this was like 10 years ago, something like that, 12 years ago. And, you know, even before the pandemic, there was really maybe you could go see three concerts a month if you were lucky. And you know, actually interesting thing to interesting bands, interesting art to go see because basically, that yeah, the music scene dried up. So now I think 
after the pandemic, I think the situation is very, very much worse. So I really have no idea how yeah. a young, yeah, young kid, a, you know, a young adult could think of starting a, a live band and do something. But, you know, uh, on the bright side, you, you ha- now we have like the biggest rock band in the world from Rome, you know, the Monoskin. So, you know, maybe things will change. Yes, I, you <laughs> did it. That's can you believe that a Eurovision winner, not only a rock band, but a Eurovision winner became like, you know, for years Eurovision was, and I love Eurovision, so I can say this, uh-huh. but for years Eurovision was a joke to people. Yeah. And it's genuinely produced one of the biggest artists of the last 10 years. Yes. So that's, that's going to change a lot of attitudes to that, I guess. But Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know what to expect in that. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it won't like, jumpstart a kind of rock revolution in Italy at all because we don't have that kind of culture anymore <laughs> maybe we used to have that like in the 70s that's wild like Italy created so much good music. it's the home of Italo disco yeah the home of Eurobeat Argue, arguably the home of power metal I would say hmm. you know so much insanely good stuff came out of Italy but you just feel like there's not a culture for it anymore yeah that that's uh I think that's a sad truth in that Many of the artists also that you mentioned in the, in the you know, Italy disco or even metal, uh, for example, uh, I always um, name Forgotten Tomb, which was one of the very first depressive suicidal black metal probably in the world. I think they jump-started almost the whole subgenre, uh-huh. the whole sound. Uh, and they were basically just one guy at the time. And yeah, Forgotten Tomb in Italy are not... Uh, fo- uh, very little fo- I mean they're not followed at all I would say I mean for, for a band that was so important for okay it's not a huge genre but yeah it's uh, it used to be kind of a big sub-genre a couple of years five years ago maybe yeah but yeah you, you know as you mentioned we have all these great artists but no one really seems to pay much attention to them <laughs> sadly so what happens is that there's not really that's interesting there's not really a scene that follows you know it, it would like you know you got Two, three, I don't know, big power metal bands. So I would imagine, you know, you got a big power metal band scene. Not really. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't mm-hmm. really work that way. I would say, you know, I would say people just think that this kind of bands, uh, like Rhapsody, for example, you know, the big one, they get lucky. So <laughs> they, don't, they don't think, oh, you know, they're kind of an inspiration story so that I, if I work hard and I get good in my playing and writing, you know, that could be the next Rhapsody. I don't know, something like that. Uh, that's not really how it works, I guess. So they don't really put in the good work. You don't really put in the, the hours. I'm not really talking about talent because I wouldn't want to, you know, generalize or anything like that. Just talking about yeah. you know putting in the, yeah, yeah. the work and the time and the hours and yeah I don't yeah I don't really see that much. Maybe that's it. I I feel like if you use Rhapsody as a specific example, I don't think a lot of people listen to Rhapsody and think I could do this. <laughs> like I listen to Rhapsody now and I'm like, how does this sound so good? Because again, they did it all in the two thousands really. And, like, I can't imagine, like, a lot of places were equipped to be writing music that was so, like, huge and thick. So maybe it's an intimidation thing. People are scared to be the next Rhapsody (laughs) because they know how much work it would take. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Point taken. That was (laughs) was really the best example. I I mean, it was the best example in that it was, you know, too high of an example. But, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about Moneskin is that they started really from the streets in that, 
it, it was apparently true that they actually used to play like you know busking in a way on the streets and you know big street in rome and so you know started from the bottom now now we're here kind of situation uh and while that is yeah. true what is also of note and i'm not wanting to you know go off topic that, that bit but they all come from quite rich families so you know <laughs> that's also something yeah no no shit like i feel like you can tell <laughs> it's very very easy to tell that i would say yeah it is it, it's it's the same in the uk honestly like we have a thing in the uk called the brit school hmm. which is just basically responsible for pumping out middle class uk pop artists <laughs> so honestly i feel like any band that gets that popular it's a pretty high chance that they're gonna have rich parents at the very least <laughs> tale as old as time <laughs> yeah and i'm allowed to complain about that and be bitter because my parents are not rich so you know that's fine i'm, al- I'm allowed to say that yes <laughs> definitely so yeah you know to, to to end this whole discussion on the italian music scene uh, i think there's still many artists that are worth one's time and even money and all of that but they're so small, <laughs> they're so hard to find that yeah. even even I have trouble sometimes, <laughs> you know, speaking the language and everything and knowing, you know, where a band comes from and all of that. Even, even I have trouble, you know, finding out, do they still exist? Do they still <laughs> make music? Are they out somewhere out there? I don't know. So, yeah, I can imagine that for whatever foreign listener, they would never find all that good stuff because it's too obscure and too small and yeah it's all it's all changed so much i think i don't i don't think streaming's bad i think streaming is good the fact that the entire history of music is basically lives on your computer is great but certainly from a formative time in my life where i was trying to discover music file sharing was massive yeah. for that i used to use a thing called soul seek yeah. i don't know if you ever use soul seek wow. so, so the idea was when when we were getting into metal bands, you could find a user on Soulseek that had an album that you liked, and we would just basically download every single metal album they had on their own personal Soulseek and listen to it. And we just found hundreds of bands that we would have never have found because you couldn't buy their CDs in shops yep. unless you know you lived in the country they were from. And I know that streaming has algorithms to be like, hey, if you like this, check out this, but it's not the same and i don't know if young people like zoomers especially have the same hunger Mm. really because they're constantly being bombarded by stuff yeah you know there was times when i was a teenager that i basically felt like i was living in a sensory deprivation time (laughs) like there's very little going on but now like you can so easily live a full life through your phone and that's not a criticism of phone bad i think phone good but i just I don't imagine that young people now have the same appetite for going and finding a hundred power metal albums yeah. to listen to. And and that makes me sound like an old man, <laughs> old fucking power metal guy complaining about how <laughs> nobody listens to Rhapsody anymore. But you know what I mean. Well, you know, to 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 go on on a final old man's note, uh, TikTok is is even you know changing the landscape of uh, of future pop music as we speak basically yeah in that yeah. now a song gets big first because someone a lot of people actually started using it on tiktok rather than listening on spotify 
So that's even worse <laughs> from my perspective, yeah. at least. <laughs> I would say again, to, I guess my own way of wrapping this up would to try and end on a positive note yeah. with it is like even though I spent a lot of time complaining about the music scene here. I'm from a small town called Livingston, which is between the cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh. And cities are very hard places to do stuff in if you don't live there. And I was really lucky that within Livingston itself, we had a local music scene. And it didn't do anything massive. It didn't, you know, none of these people are now famous artists. Mm -hmm. But we had one, two, three venues where people were putting on gigs themselves not taking any money just doing it out the goodness of their heart because they wanted to support other bands give other bands a place to play and it was a very small very talented community that meant even though there was all this bad stuff happening in the cities like predatory promoters that we didn't have to worry about that and we also didn't have to worry about you know tiktok social media <laughs> trying to get your song to blow up on soundcloud none of that stuff existed and yeah i'm just extremely lucky that i did get to exist for a time of my life in a small music scene like that because i genuinely wouldn't be here without that it's the most nurturing sort of community i've ever been a part of and yeah it's just special you don't get to do that a lot i think there's only maybe you get one shot in your life to what be in a band with your best mates and mm. play shows with your other best mates and other bands so yeah i don't want to be too negative about my time as a youth in scotland because i was extremely lucky to have the scene that we did but i just it must be hard now for young bands and young musicians and there's a lot more opportunity and you know you can make music on your computer now and you can make music on your phone and some things have gotten easier but yeah i just i, I don't know what it's like for people trying to break into anything now um whether that's even just wanting to be in a band or you know doing something like me eventually mm -hmm. making a career out of writing video game music it just changes changes all the time and yeah we can just be thankful for our own experiences i guess <laughs> yeah we're, we're old people and proud of it basically <laughs> right <laughs> this is the thing as well i'm not like we're not even that old but no <laughs> in, ter in terms of what old means to today's teenagers yeah we may as well be dead at this point <laughs> we have nothing left to give society so <laughs> exactly not even one last tiktok in us left so yeah. might as well no I've, uh, can i tell you something yeah i have never made a tiktok <laughs> never me neither so see we have nothing left to give what would it <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like, yeah, what would it do? What would it say? Uh, there's only so much cringe you're capable of, and I jettisoned all my cringe during the MySpace area, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs>